Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL and bringing you what we call the American view. That is the view of our founders. What did they think? What was their philosophy about human civil government? And they stated it very plainly and clearly in the Declaration of Independence. Three points are the, the key points. First, there is a creator God who created the entire universe, including each and every one of us. Second, our rights come from him. That is, they are God-given rights. They don't come from any human civil government. They come from God, which is why they said in the Declaration, they're inalienable rights. You cannot take them away from us. They're uh, wired into us as part of our very being as human beings. So there is a creator God. Our rights come from him. And the third point, very critically important. They said in the Declaration of Independence, the only purpose, that's right, the only purpose for human civil government is to defend and protect those God-given rights. Not to see that you got your seatbelt on, not that sees you're wearing your helmet when you're riding your bicycle or any number of a thousand other nanny tasks that uh, nanny government wants to do in our day, but only protecting your God-given rights. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, serving as a senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me, my fine collaborator on this fine Friday morning is Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And this morning, we're starting a brand new series here at WFYL. And this new series is going to look at the history of civil government and the importance of looking at the history of human civil government. So we need to realize that what our founders created was something very unique in the history of the world, and not only to appreciate its uniqueness, but to understand why it was structured to protect our God-given rights because of all the history of human civil governments that fail to do that task and, and fail miserably. We're going to discover some that were uh, egregious examples of failures and others there are less, but nonetheless... In the study of the history, and our founders did this study of the history of, of, of uh, governments throughout the world, they discovered that it was only a structure that, as the one they created in our constitutional republic, that would actually ever protect the God-given rights of we, the people. And uh, doing that study, we want to kind of walk in their footsteps in this series. We want to discover what they knew and what they understood. And many of these things, my friends, are not taught in the public schools uh, leading up to 12th grade, nor in the colleges, nor in the graduate schools. They're not taught virtually anywhere because this view of history of our founders has virtually been whitewashed over or erased essentially in our culture today. And we would contend that the recovery of this understanding of the history of government is essential in restoring our constitutional republic. We can just look around us at the egregious things being done by Washington, D.C. and by our state capitals and even by our county governments, maybe even our township governments, and see that our government is not at all about protecting God given rights. So it's very much about uh, aggrandizing the power of government to uh, plunder us by taxation and inflation and many other things. But it isn't a, at all about what our founders created it to be. And we've come to this impasse where the people of these United States have accepted the kind of creeping tyranny that we are experiencing. And it may, may be creeping up into 2020. And then it, it, I think it began to gallop full speed ahead uh, uh, with the tyrannical forms of government that we are under. But 
when we understand the history, we understand the necessity of structuring a government that is under the structure of our constitutional republic. And we see the wisdom of our founders. So let me uh, go first. Actually, usually Phil does and then I follow, but uh, we're going to reverse that uh, order. And for this reason, actually, because I'm going to talk about the history from the beginning. That's right, from the Garden of Eden. And going to talk about the history that's recorded in God's Word, while Phil's going to take us through what you know might want to call a secular history, what other nations were doing around the world, and uh, the history of those monarchies and empires and so on, uh, to see what they were uh, showing by example, uh, the things to avoid when you're crafting a civil government, as well as occasionally uh, some insights that are valuable. So let me begin our, uh, our series here by going back to the Garden of Eden, because the real question the Garden of Eden answers is, why do we need to have government at all? This is a significant question, and there are many people today, they're often known as anarchists, who deny that we have any need for civil government whatsoever. You know, they're so upset, and I agree with their uh, attitude of being upset that our civil government is violating our God-given rights. It's not doing its job of protecting our God-given rights at all. Agreed, agreed on that. But their solution is, well, let's just abolish all government. Just get rid of it all because it's all bad. It's never been good. And and, uh, we just each man do whatever he chooses. Now, the problem of that is illustrated in the Garden of Eden because God, who is the creator of all things, who gave rights to Adam and Eve, also gave them his commands. That is, we need to understand when God gives rights, he also identifies what is wrong. That's correct. There are rights which you have, by God's authority, the duty or at least the liberty to do these certain things, but then there are wrongs, things that you are not permitted to do according to God's commandment, according to God's law. And there's a series of positive commands that God uh, gave Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, uh, uh, take dominion over the whole earth uh, and spread to the corners of the earth with your family government. Uh, and there was only one negative commandment that God gave them. So they had tremendous liberty. You could eat of any of the trees of the garden at all, but there's one tree and only one tree that you cannot eat of. Now, people make a, a mistake when they think this is an apple tree or some other type of tree. No, no, no. The tree is described for us there in, in Genesis 3 as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is, To take the fruit of this tree would be to declare Adam and Eve independent of God in determining what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust, what is good and what is evil. To say uh, Adam and Eve would basically be saying to God, yeah, you created us, but we're rejecting your law. We don't want to follow your law. We want to be a law unto ourselves. We want to establish in our own eyes what is good and what is evil, what is just and unjust, what is right and what is wrong. And we don't need your law. That is essentially what Adam and Eve were saying when they took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, declaring themselves independent from God and thereby being able to say, we establish the standards of right, wrong, good, and evil. Now, Think about that in terms of what we have seen in the past 50 years here in these United States of America. There was a point which the Supreme Court in 1973 declared the murdering babies in their womb by uh, the choice of the mother and and, uh, the the actions of an abortionist 
that this baby could be murdered with impunity. In fact, they declared it, uh, this is lawful. This is what's right. This is what's good. It's good to murder babies. It's right to murder babies. And so 65 million, and perhaps even more than that, 65 million babies were murdered as a result of our Supreme Court doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, picking that fruit and said, we are the ones who determine what is right and wrong. We are the ones that determine what is good and what is evil. And so that's just one example of many things that have happened in our country. Uh, for example, another would be the redefinition of marriage. And by the way, whose idea was marriage? Was it ever a man that came up with marriage? No. Scripture tells us very clearly it was God. God is the one who created Eve out of the rib of Adam and brought Eve to Adam and conducted the first wedding ceremony. Marriage is God's idea. It's the creator's design uh, for the establishment of the family government, for the reproduction of what's going to take place that would fill the earth uh, with human beings in every corner of the earth to take dominion over the earth. It was all God's design and God's plan. So in Obersfeld, the wicked Supreme Court justices were spitting in the face of the creator and saying, we reject your law regarding marriage. We claim that we can establish what we believe marriage to be, and that's two sodomite men making a, a pagan ceremony together, or two sodomite women uh, conducting a pagan ceremony, and we declare that to be marriage in these United States. And so wisely, uh, uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned uh, in the Dobbs decision, and the, that decision now returned to the states, but Obersfeld still remains in many people's minds the law of the land. It's what, you know, is traditional law now in America. It is claimed that we have overthrown the creator of the universe. By the way, I would add that that's a very dangerous road to go down because if you've overthrown the law of the creator, uh, what our founders called in the Declaration of Independence, the laws of nature and nature's God, which by the way, in that second phrase, the laws of nature's God, they were making a direct reference to scripture, to the Bible. We know that because they were all reading William Blackstone and William Blackstone's first two categories of law, the laws of nature, refer to human reason, human conscience. That is, our creator has written on our very being, our nature, our conscience. He's written his law. Now, most most human beings, well, all human beings disobey that conscience. And so that becomes dull and sometimes uh, inoperative, the you know conscience of a sociopath. They have no remorse at all about the evil things they do. So conscience may not always be a trustworthy guide and therefore god in his mercy blackstone said gave us a written a written law the revealed law of god and blackstone said that conscience laws of nature and the revealed law these two which our founders paraphrase the laws of nature and the laws of nature's god the bible these two are the standard of what is right what is wrong and they said human and, and blackstone said and our founders followed this thinking Human law, he called municipal law, that which legislators write on a piece of paper and uh, they pass it and they say, well, this is now the law. Well, and Blackstone said, and our founders agreed with him entirely, any law made by man, man put pen to paper, any laws of such nature that is not in complete compliance with the laws of nature and nature's God is not law. And that's the foundational idea of our constitutional republic because in the Declaration of Independence, they said, because King George III in 27 ways, here's how he has violated the laws of nature and nature's God. He therefore is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. 
And we have a God-given right to separate from his government, to secede from the government of Great Britain and create our own government that will follow the laws of nature and nature's God. So you see how the, the, the same pattern of Adam and Eve was being followed in our founder's era. They were recognized. King George III has basically picked the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and declared that he, independent of God and independent of God's law, he alone could determine what is right and wrong. He alone could say, oh, there's not going to be a jury trial for you colonists, or we're going to drag you across the seas to put you on trial in London, and many, many other things. The 27 lists there in the declaration is very clear. Our founders are saying that's wrong. What he has done, he's done the same thing that Adam and Eve were doing in taking the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and declaring that they are the standard, that they get to determine what is right and wrong, not God, the creator. And by the way, uh, King George III had plenty of monarchs who agreed with him. They had a, a philosophy that many call the divine right of kings. That is, if you're a king, they would say, God has set you up as a king, and therefore you're the closest thing to God, and whatever comes out of your mouth or whatever ink you spill on paper, that's the law, because God has made you the king, and as the divine right of kings, you have the right to establish what the law is even if what you establish is a violation of God's clearly stated law given to us in the Bible. And so our founders turned and said, no, no, this is wrong. The king is wrong. The king is in violation of God's law. That's what the Declaration of Independence uh, is clearly establishing. And because the king is in violation of God's law, and the result of his violations of God's law, are not just some petty little feud with his wife or his children or somebody like that. No, no, no. He has violated our right as colonists that we have given to us by God. And in fact, the king is in violation of his own oath that he swore before Almighty God to obey things like the Magna Carta and things like the Englishman's Bill of Rights, 1688, and so on. The king has sworn an oath to God to obey certain things, and he's doing the opposite of his oath. He's being Adam and Eve, taking the uh, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and declaring that he, independent of God, because the king was not following God's word, that he, independent of God, could establish what's right and what's wrong, and the colonists had nothing they could do to stop him from doing it. They just needed to roll up their sleeves and submit, submit to whatever the king commanded of them, because he was the king, and they were mere subjects, mere serfs on his land. That was the attitude of King George III that uh, our founders confronted and, and dealt with. So when we look at what Adam and Eve did in the garden, we know that in chapter three, clearly uh, the disaster that resulted from that affected every corner of the creation and obviously every corner of the earth. In fact, every human being, uh, the curse that came on Adam and Eve came upon them and thereby on all of their descendants. And by the way, we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. Well, not, we're not descendants of some monkey that, uh, you know, crawled out of the slimy swamp and, and started walking on land. No, no, that evolutionary theory has never been proven. There's no evidence for it. And uh, you can't even prove it if, if there was supposed evidence for it because nobody was there to witness this thing crawling out of the swamp and becoming a, a, an ape and then a man. Now, nobody can witness that, nor can they reproduce that in a laboratory. And so our founders said, and they spoke of the creator of the universe, the laws of nature, nature's God are the laws of the creator. They said, there is a creator God who created all things. 
We did not evolve into uh, manhood. We were created by God, and therefore it is God who has given us rights as human beings, which Genesis tells us that human beings were made in the image of God and in the likeness of God. We have rights that animals do not have. Now, that's not to say we, we don't that we mistreat animals. No, that's, that's not the point. The point is animals do not have rights as man has rights uh, made in the image of God. So the whole reason for human civil government and, and civil government to be necessary at all was because of the fall of mankind into sin. Because it wasn't just Adam and Eve that were now sinners. Their children were sinners. Their first son, Cain, killed their second, Abel. First murder that ever took place, took place in their family, in their immediate uh, children. And, and so we see that the need for human civil government comes into the picture because of Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden, because they uh, declared themselves independent from God and began to say, well, no, we are the law. And their pattern of, of declaring themselves to be law, rejecting God's law, is the pattern we're going to see throughout human history. And this is what all human civil governments have, have done when they've gotten out of line. They become tyrannical. Why do they become tyrannical? Because they declare themselves to be the law, like King George III. We are the standard. We determine what's right and wrong, good and evil, what's just and unjust. We can reject God's law and allow human beings to establish themselves as the standard of law. Now, it's interesting, as I teach at Institute on the Constitution, a lot of different students from various different backgrounds. And one student, uh, I remember, who was an atheist, uh, took our course and uh, he was, you know, kind of amazed by our approach because he'd never heard it before. And at the end of the course, he said to me, David, I don't agree with your theology. You know, I, I don't agree that God exists and, and that, but I do see the value in the philosophy of what you're teaching. There needs to be an external standard that human beings cannot alter, that human beings cannot change, even if 50% plus one of them, you know, in, in, a, in a mobocracy, even if the mobocracy says, no, 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 we want this. No, no, no. There should be a standard outside of human beings that they cannot alter, that they cannot change. I said, oh, you don't kind of like the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit. I said, yeah. Um, you know, even though he doesn't agree that there is a religious basis, that there is a God who created all things and established that law, he agreed that there needed to be an external standard outside of something that mankind could change. And he understood in his experience as a human being that you could see people changing the law all the time, you know. Uh, so this year, it's it's perfectly legitimate to do X, Y, and Z. And next year, it's like, oh, no, they just made that a crime. Oh, made it a crime to walk into the people's house, which is what uh, uh, the capital in Washington, D.C. It's the people's house to walk into the people. They made that a crime. And they have thrown people in the gulag who are there today unjustly charged with something that's not even a crime being punished. And so human civil governments are not to be trusted because all men are sinners, all as descendants of Adam and Eve uh, have fallen into that trap of sin uh, from, uh, from, from their, their example and from uh, as, as their descendants. So the very need for civil government actually harks all the way back uh, to the Garden of Eden and the events that scripture record took place there. Now, Again, many people want to object and say, well, you know, that's a uh, mythology. And I would counter, no, it is not. 
we have the human beings that were alive that were witnesses to these things. And more importantly than even the human beings, Adam and Eve, that were alive, we have the Lord God himself that was a witness to these events and passed on that uh, testimony to Moses, who was actually uh, the God-inspired author of uh, the, the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So we have an eyewitness account of what took place at the very beginning of time and the very need for human civil government came from the sin of Adam and Eve. And the desperate need for human civil government was immediately demonstrated in their progeny with Cain's murder of Abel. And uh, it's interesting when God confronted Cain and, and uh, told him his punishment, that he would uh, wander the earth, that the blood of his brother cried out for justice. And, and he said his, his burden was too great that someone would come along and find him and kill him. So yes, he murdered his brother. He was afraid somebody was going to murder him. And God uh, put a mark on Cain and said, no one uh, will be permitted to murder you. And if they do, the judgment on you will be seven times worse on them. So it is interesting that at the very beginning of time, the only government that existed was the family government. God ordained the family government in the Garden of Eden when he married Adam and Eve in the first wedding ceremony. Family government existed, and yet family government did not have the authority to execute anyone including a murderer. And so Cain was let go because there was no human civil government yet in existence. God was going to create later in time church government and civil government. Civil government created at uh, the flood as Adam, as, as Noah, excuse me, uh, and his family came off the ark. God made it very clear in Genesis chapter 9 that if a man shed, shed the blood of another human being unjustly, in other words, murder, if murder was committed, that man had forfeited his life and his life should be taken from him. So there was the very first job of human civil government to execute those who commit murder. And uh, so up until the flood and what followed after the flood, there really was no human civil government. And God saw the disaster that brought upon the world with all the evil only continually uh, in that pre-Diluvian world, the violence and the wickedness. God said, finally, it is enough. I'm going to exterminate all human beings with the exception of Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and basically hit restart with a brand new world and a brand new family, Noah's family. But the first task he gave them was to form a civil government that would punish murderers and punish them by execution. Well, Phil, what's your thoughts about uh, the history of, uh, of world civilizations and uh, particularly world governments? Well, what is meant by civil government? Our definition would include all governments, excluding those that exist purely as a result of military coercion of subjects or citizens. The latter society could be said to live under martial law. Here is John Locke's attempt to define civil government. Men being, as has been said, by nature all free, equal, and independent. No one can be put out of this estate and subjected to the political power of another without his own consent, which is done by agreeing with other men to join and unite a community for all comfortable, safe, and peaceable living, one amongst another, in a secure enjoyment of their properties, and a greater security against any that are not of it. This any number of men may do, because it injures not the freedom of the rest, they are left as they were in the liberty of the state of nature. 
when any number of men have so consented to make one community or government, they are thereby presently incorporated and make one body politic, wherein the majority had the right to act and conclude the rest. For when any number of men have, by the consent of every individual, made a community, they have thereby made that community one body, with a power to act as one body, which is only by the will and determination of the majority. And thus every man, by consenting with others to make one body politic, under one government, puts himself under an obligation to everyone of that society to submit to the determination of the majority and to be concluded by it, or else this original compact, whereby he with others incorporates into one society, would signify nothing and be no compact if he be left free and under no other ties than he was in before the state of nature. For what appearance would there be of any compact? What new engagement, if he were no further tied by the decrees of the society, that he himself thought fit and didn't actually consent to? This would still be as great a liberty as he himself had before his compact, or anyone else in the state of nature, who may submit himself and consent to the acts of it, if he thinks fit. For if the consent of the majority shall not in reason be received as the act of the whole, and conclude every individual, nothing but the consent of every individual can make anything to be the act of the whole, which considering the infirmities of health and avocations of business, which in number, though much less than that of a commonwealth, will necessarily keep many away from the public assembly, and the variety of opinions and contrariety of interests which unavoidably happen in all collections of men, it is next impossible ever to be had. Whosoever, therefore, out of a state of nature unite into a community, must be understood to give up all the power necessary to the ends for which they unite into society, to the majority of the community, unless they expressly agreed in any number greater than the majority. And this is done by barely agreeing to unite into one political society, which is all the compact that is or needs be between the individuals that enter into or make up a commonwealth. And thus, that which begins and actually constitutes any political society is nothing but the consent of any number of free men capable of majority to unite and incorporate into such a society. And this is that, and that only, which did or could give beginning to any lawful government in the world. Locke makes a distinction that civil government requires the consent of the governor, that a social compact must exist in which individuals divest themselves of total freedom of action in order to derive the benefits of an orderly society. Civil government need not require that the people be represented in the government. As long as the people freely consent, they can divest themselves of natural rights and place themselves under the protection of a monarch or even a dictator. In that case, the individuals are no longer citizens, but subjects. It is rare that monarchs are elected, however, 
since most monarchies have arisen out of the successful use of force and rely on their legitimacy according to rules of succession outside of the control of the people. All civil governments are maintained through the seizure of the people's wealth. Through most history, that has occurred through taxation. More recently, inflation, the creation of counterfeit money instruments by the government, has increasingly become important as a means of seizing the individual's wealth. This is what Locke had to say about property. God, who hath given the world to men in common, hath also given them reason to make use of it to the best advantage of life and convenience. The earth and all that is therein is given to men for the support and comfort of their being. And though all the fruits it naturally produces and beasts it feeds belong to mankind in common, as they are produced by the spontaneous hand of nature, and nobody has originally a private dominion exclusive of the rest of mankind in any of them, as they are thus in their natural state, yet being given for the use of men, there must of necessity be a means to appropriate them some way or other before they can be of any use or at all beneficial to any particular man. The fruit or venison which nourishes the wild Indian, who knows no enclosure and is still a tenant in common, must be his, and so his that is a part of him, that another can no longer have any right to it before it can do him any good for the support of his life. Though the earth and all inferior creatures be common to all men, yet every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. Whatsoever, then, he removes out of the state that nature hath provided and left it in, he hath mixed his labor with it, and joined to it something that is his own, and thereby makes it his property. It being by him removed from the common state nature placed it in, he hath by this labor something annexed to it that excludes the common right of other men. For this labor, being the unquestionable property of the, of the laborer, no man, but he can have a right to what uh, that is once joined to, at least where there is enough, and is good left in common for others. What Locke is saying is that until individuals mix their labor with the natural resources that have been pro uh, provided, those resources are held in common available to all. Sticking a flag in the ground and proclaiming those lands to belong to the nation of which the flag is a symbol does not grant ownership to that nation. How does Locke resolve this, uh, the seeming conflict between an individual's right of property with government's power to tax? Tis true, governments cannot be supported without great charge, and tis Fit every one who enjoys his share of the protection should pay out of his estate his proportion for the maintenance of it. But still, it must be with his own consent 
That is the consent of the majority, giving it either by themselves or their representatives chosen by them. For if anyone shall claim a power to lay and levy taxes on the people by his own authority and without such consent of the people, he thereby invades the fundamental law of property and subverts the end of government. For what property have I in that which another may by right take when he pleases to himself? So what is the significance of Locke's second treatise of government from which all of this has been taken? Just as Montesquieu influenced the framers of the Constitution of the United States, Locke influenced the Declaration of Independence. Some critics of Jefferson claim that the Declaration was merely a restatement of Locke's second treatise of government. That is probably not true in that Jefferson's pursuit of happiness expands upon Locke's estate or property. But there is no question that Locke influenced Jefferson. If we accept Locke's definition of civil government, what are the implications? We can't just view Locke's key ideas that only government that operates with the consent of the people is civil or legitimate. As a theory, many Americans would accept that idea. But it is only when a theory can be applied effectively in the, the real world that it gains support. Constitution of the United States establishes a government that theoretically is government of the people, by the people, and for the people. <clears throat> How does that theory square with the bailouts of 2008, when approximately 75 75% of the people opposed the actions taken by their representatives? Under the current real rules of so-called representative government, we are told that since we get to vote for our federal representatives once every two years and once every six years for our senators, we control the government. Consider the absurdity of that idea. The people control only the selection of their representatives one day in 730 and their senators one day in 2,191. And do the people really select these people? Where they selected for us, such that elections become a matter of choosing the lesser of two evils, dismissing the idea that third-party candidates are viable under the current two-party system. The situation becomes obvious when we consider how the federal government extracts their wealth through taxation and inflation. The Econolib website estimates the cost of supporting the conflict in the Ukraine as an example. In 2022, the U.S. government approved expenditures of $113 billion on aid to Ukraine. The Committee for Responsible Federal Budget writes, In total, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that $6.6 billion of the $113 billion would be spent in fiscal year 2022 and another $237,000 Seven billion in fiscal year 2023. Furthermore, the Congressional Budget Office estimated more than eight of the approved funds would be spent by the end of fiscal year 2024 and more than three-fourths by the end of fiscal year 2026. How much will that cost the average household? There are approximately 131.2 million households in the United States. 
So the average cost per household is one hundred and thirteen billion divided by one hundred and thirty-one million, which is eight hundred and sixty-one dollars per household. Granted, that averages are misleading because high-income earners pay significantly more tax than those in lower brackets. Yet this is a single item in the federal budget. Imagine taxpayers being presented with an itemized bill for all federal expenditures identifying their household's share. How many are likely to accept these charges? If taxpayers have no real control over the taxes they contribute to the federal system, the case is even worse with inflation. The truth is that there is no nation in the world that meets Locke's theoretical standard of either government with the consent of the government and wealth extraction from the citizens who determine how much they will contribute to the federal government. Instead, we have an internal revenue service that acts more like an economic Gestapo, threatening the lives of citizens who do not comply with the tax seizures dictated by the so-called representatives of the people. To add insult on top of injury, those representatives have supported the smoke and mirrors Federal Reserve System that destroys the value of the currency through inflation designed to shift wealth from its producers to the politically connected. As we pursue the history of civil government in subsequent sessions, bear in mind that according to the strictest interpretation of Locke's second treatise of government, civil government has never been achieved. Although that ideal was most closely reached in the early 19th century with the presidency of Thomas Jefferson in 1801. Even in Locke's England, where the glorious revolution brought William and Mary to the throne while strengthening the powers of Parliament as opposed to the monarchy, it could not be said that Britain had established government of by and for the people. Parliament was composed primarily of rotten boroughs, a vestige from feudal times when the lord of the manor was local government. This was one reason why Britain's North American colonists rejected the idea of having representation in Parliament as opposed to full independence. The newly formed United States came more closely to the ideal consent by the governed under the Constitution. But government of, by, and for the people foundered on two contradictions to that principle. The first, slavery, and the second, funding of the federal government. The imperfect solution to the first was for the northern states to enforce their will on the southern states. It should be noted that the southern states believed that they were also victims of the unfair moral tariff of 1861. In any case, slavery was eliminated as a result of the war between the states, but we are still living with the implications of that supposed resolution today. The second impediment to theoretical civil government in the United States is a more complex issue. Under the prior constitution, the Articles of Confederation, the federal government was funded by allocations made on the states by the Congress of the Articles. Because some states did not pay their allocations on time, threatening the viability of the federal government, <clears throat> those promoting, uh, promoting a stronger national government convinced others that the federal government needed an independent source of income. Under the Constitution of 1787, that fault was supposedly corrected by granting the new 
federal government a monopoly on the collection of duties, imports, imposts, and excises. But it was also granted the power to collect taxes, according to Article 1, Section 8. The culture of the nation was such that for the first century after the ratification of the Constitution, 1787, the federal government was generally able to exist based on its duties, imposts, and taxes, and excises. I'm sorry. After that, pressures were building to expand the federal government's taxing power. That pressure exploded in 1913 with the 16th Amendment opening the door to the progressive income tax necessary to support an expansive federal government. Simultaneously, the Federal Reserve Act was passed. If the federal government's supposed needs exceeded taxes, that could be extorted before a revolt occurred. Uh, deficit financing and the printing of fiat money would find the additional revenues. So this leads us to two conflicting models of government. With few exceptions, we might dismiss all governments prior to the Glorious Revolution as outside of the scope of civil government in that they could hardly be formed with the consent of the people. That would be a mistake, because the Western idea of law was evolving, and eventually it would be recognized as necessary to support the Lockean idea of a liberal government. We also need to explore the ancient Athenian government to see how truly democratic it was. We'll be exposed to a different view of history than can be found in textbooks. 1688 is a milestone year in that it signaled a breakdown of the political system of the feudal age. Soon after, the first parts of the British Agricultural Revolution made their appearance, dovetailing with the Age of Discovery. Feudal-based economic classes began to deteriorate, while new wealth flowed into Europe from the American continents, creating international trade. Britain was uniquely positioned to take advantage of this source of wealth, as it was the center of immense productivity gains in agriculture. However, the 17th and 18th centuries were also the age of mercantilism, when the heavy hand of national governments fell on the private sector. A Norman Irishman, Richard Cantillon, was the first to sense these changes, writing essay on the nature of trade in general in the early 1730s. Cantillon's essay noted two general changes that were important in the 18th century. The first, the role of the entrepreneur in creating economic growth, and second, the decline of economic class. Although e, uh, Adam Smith wrote his Wealth of Nations five decades later and clearly had access to Cantillon's work, he chose to completely ignore the contribution of the, uh, the entrepreneur while emphasizing the now ridiculed labor theory of value. He also claimed that the profit was a deduction from the legitimate earnings of the worker. He furthermore supported the mercantilist trading companies, including the East India Company and the Africa Company. The latter was formed to kidnap West Africans and sell them into slavery. To explore the forces that encourage the tendency towards civil government, it is necessary to create a model over time. The dominant force over most of history has been monarchy and its extension, empire. 
What is not apparent is that these forms of government fall under the more general category of collectivism because they are characterized by self-styled elites using government to pursue their own interests at the expense of the remainder of the population. They are at the lowest part of the civil government spectrum because they were instituted with force. World War I saw the demise of monarchy and empire, but was followed by two conflicting forces, the collectivism that sprang out of the French Revolution and Marxian socialism, and the continuation of representative government, the best example of which was the founding of the United States. Even in the latter case, however, we see in the efforts of Alexander Hamilton and those who were influenced by him attempts to move away from truly representative government, consistent with the Lockean model, toward what has been called crony or political capitalism. The vehicle for, uh, vehicle for this has been the centralization of powers in government and the assertion that central government enjoys implied powers, which translates into unlimited powers. The program toward the concentration of power in government has been conducted often under the label of democracy, which is one reason why the nation's founders feared democracy as much as they feared monarchy. Consider these thoughts as we explore civil government, as defined by Locke from ancient times to the present. Oh, thank you, Phil. I appreciate your analysis and especially like your uh, description because uh, the description of uh, collectivism is characterized by self-styled elites using government to pursue their own interests at the expense of the remainder of the population. I say that sounds like America today. In my view, look at the Biden crime family using uh, uh, that name to uh, get billions of dollars coming into their family coffers. Oh, and the big guy gets his, uh, I guess it was a 10% cut on anything coming into the family. It's like, whoa, here we have the same thing over an oligarchy of people who are really self-appointed that is, they're not at all following our constitutional rules and uh, basically uh, aggrandizing themselves against all of the rest of us. Well, that crony capitalism or, or political capitalism, whatever you call it, uh, it really is, as you, as you were mentioning, births from Hamilton all the way back to the founding era. Hamilton was probably the worst of our founding fathers and that he wanted a strong centralized uh, uh, federal government that almost was a monarchy. He proposed in the Constitution something that looked akin to a monarchy. It was rejected, of course, but uh, nonetheless, he, he spoke for it. And when his, uh, his theory was completely rejected, he left Philadelphia in a huff. He was upset, but later he, he gained his composure and he came back at least for the end of the Constitutional Convention, because he was one of one of the signers. So kudos, because we, we see in the history of human civil governments, these models of uh, a government aggrandizing his power. And you're right that uh, most governments are, are obtained by force. That is, one military marches into another country, conquers that country, establishes their puppet regime uh, over that country, which is not any representation of, of the people in, in that land. But uh, we had the blessing after the War for Independence of establishing a free government on principles that uh, we the people uh, were choosing through our elected representatives, or in the case of the Constitution, through uh, conventions in each of the states that were going to ratify or choose not to ratify uh, our Constitution.
Well, I think it, it, it's interesting that, um, you know, if we look at the derivation of, of law, um, basically, um, if you go back to, to Moses um, and, the, and uh, Genesis, um, and if you project forward to the time of, of Thomas Aquinas, what you realize is that there is a, a somewhat of a unique concept of, the, uh, of law that is emerging. Uh, basically, Aquinas established a, uh, a model in which there was at the highest level the eternal law, which was the word of God. Uh, and there were two uh, subsidiaries to that that were derived from the eternal uh, law, which were the natural law and scriptural or divine law. Now, once you had those two levels in place, then only could you establish human or positive law. Now, if we look at that, that concept and we, we look at an alternative to it, the alternative is that there is some kind of a power at that top level replacing the eternal law of God. And it's typically the elites that we have been talking about. Uh, the elites establish that level, if you will, and then create positive law that is consistent with that. Now, we can look at uh, the Nazi situation. Uh, 1935, the, the uh, infamous Nuremberg Laws that, that basically uh, uh, identified Jews uh, as, as subhuman. Okay, that's in, in violation of the natural law. I think it's in violation of the divine uh, uh, law as well. But nonetheless, you know, it's a pretty good example of, of that alternative approach. Okay, going into uh, the conclusion of World War II and the uh, uh, trials of the top Nazis again in Nuremberg, uh, we're faced with this dilemma. Have they really committed a crime? Not according to their rules. If they say, well, we basically had laws in place, we passed those laws, and we only took actions uh, consistent with those laws, and the people who are on trial here today are on trial because they just followed orders. And that was the major defense that was put up by the top Nazis, that they were just following orders. The court rejected that concept and said, no, no, no. The court actually went back to the, the concept of the natural law and insisted that there was a natural law that had to be observed. And so they were tried, and most of them were executed as a result of that. So it's something to remember about this structure of, of law. Amen. And I appreciate you bringing up the Nuremberg trials because they point out very clearly that there is a standard external, in this case, to the laws of Nazi Germany. And by the way, I understand the judges in Nazi Germany, uh, just as in our judicial system, they can be a check against a law to say, well, you know, that law is not really uh, constitutional. We're going to strike it down. So the Nazi judges in Germany also signed off on these so-called laws and said, this is valid. 
we went through the proper procedures according to our our structure here, and, and uh, we followed all, we crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, and everything's fine. But the Nuremberg trials pointed out, no, 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 there is a law higher than your Nazi law by which your Nazi law must be judged. And that's, again, what our founders in the Declaration of Independence called the laws of nature and nature's God, because they had the same conflict with King George III, who was saying, I have spoken or I have spilled ink on a piece of paper, and therefore it is law because it came out of the mouth of the king, and the king is God's regent here on earth, God's voice on earth, and you must obey whatever the king says because uh, he's God's highest representative here on earth, the divine right of kings. And they said, no, 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 that's not true. There is a law system higher than the king, and anything the king puts out as law or parliament puts out as law must be judged by this higher standard, the laws of nature, nature's God, which of course uh, includes scripture. So again, it reminds me, taking us all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, what they were doing when they picked the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the same thing Nazi Germany did. Nazi Germany said, we can ignore God's law, the laws of nature, nature's God, and we can establish our own law that says, yeah, we throw these Jews in the, in, in the gas chamber and kill them and steal all their property. And that's perfectly legitimate because we say it's legitimate. And God's word says, no, no, there is a law standard higher than whatever you spill on a piece of paper. And that law says thou shalt not murder. That law says thou shalt not steal. And both what the Nazis were doing was murdering and stealing and obviously depriving of liberty those that they incarcerated in the concentration camps and eventually killed. So all of these, these are all good examples of, uh, of systems of government that are doing exactly the same thing that Adam and Eve are doing, saying there is no divine law, there is no standard higher than what we call law. And I think it's very important for us to understand this today because that same philosophy is afoot today in these United States. There are people in these United States, the Supreme Court justices even, in Obersfeld, they say, we don't care what the creator of the universe says marriage is, we're going to redefine marriage any way we want to, which somebody pointed out, well, hey, that means they could redefine marriage as a man and his horse, you know, hey, why not, you know, or, or a man and 15 women or whatever, that basically if man can define law, there is no limit to what he can do, and therefore what he will do, because all men are sinners, all men are fallen, what he will do will violate the God-given rights of his neighbor. Because that's what everyone, you know, in their sinful nature, they want to do. They want to steal. They want to murder. They want to kill. They want to get away with these evil deeds. And the law exists and civil government is created, according to our founders, in order to stop that, in order to prevent the destruction of a person's God-given rights. So I'm loving how this all ties together, Phil. The one end connects to the other. It goes all the way back. Uh, to the Garden of Eden. Well, it raises the question about judges. Um, <clears throat> are they just governed by positive law, or are they um, are they governed by uh, higher law? Um, I think in in more liberal societies, what we find is an acknowledged and literal recognition of that in constitutions, which says that. Um, the judges, for example, uh, are required to support the uh, 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 the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the United States, if you look at its intent, says, you know, basically, you can't go off and 
uh, come up with these arbitrary uh, uh, this arbitrary legislation that says that uh, uh, two individuals of the same sex uh, may be considered to be uh, uh, matrimonially uh, tied. No, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, so there there are very very strong limitations on what the federal government can can do identified in the Constitution of the United States. And I think that if you, if you look at uh, the outlays for uh, federal expenditures, um, I believe it was the, the Heritage Foundation that found that something like 90 or even 95% of those outlays are unconstitutional. How, how do judges and uh, the executive branch of the federal government allow that to happen. Well, uh, I, part of it is the language that we use the Constitution that they could support. Well, support is one of the weakest words in the English language, I think. Um, if you look at the requirement uh, of the, the oath of office for the, the president of the United States, uh, the president has to defend and, and so forth the Constitution, which is a little bit, uh, I, I think, in terms of a mother bear protecting her cubs, you know, you don't want to mess with them. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the level of of uh, support I think that is required in the Constitution, and unfortunately, we don't have that. And I think a lot has happened in the attitude of those who are in the judicial branch. For not all, but many of them consider that they can legislate from the bench, so to speak. Uh, I know there was one uh, Supreme Court justice who infamously said. Yeah, the uh, Supreme Court is the continuing constitutional convention. That is, they get to write the Constitution any way they want, revamp it, uh, uh, amend it any which way they choose, that as they spill ink on a piece of paper, they can do that. Well, read our Constitution very clearly. They have no power or authority to amend the Constitution. Article 5 gives the very specific procedures for amending it, and the Supreme Court has nothing to do with a, a, a method of amending the Constitution. Uh, so those who consider, you know, Judges make law, and hey, they're they're a continuing constitutional convention. There are a group of black robe lawyers who are completely out of control in that regard, and we the people need to rein them in. But that takes we the people understanding the supreme law of the land, understanding this biblical worldview of law and government, that there is a creator God, our rights come from him, and the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. And that's that message is why we exist at We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we would invite your input in this new series. You can use my email. Uh, my email is dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com, and we invite you to uh, look at our website, 1180wfyl.com, and, and uh, click on podcast. You'll find that we're right down the bottom of the list, We the People. We have an enormous number of years of resources to help educate people across our nation on what the Constitution says, what the Declaration of Independence says, what the Bill of Rights and subsequent amendments. So we invite you also to join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m. here at WFYL. We the people, the Constitution matters.